Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. So, as some of you surely know, I've spoken before about the history of the British monarchy, British politics, from medieval times up to recent times. I'm very interested in the role and the symbolism of monarchy in the modern world. And you may also know we are in a transitional period right now after the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch ever in British history and one of the longest in all of known recorded history in the world. And the new king, Charles III, has taken the throne, but he has still not yet had his coronation. So, in a sense, the monarchy and all of its ceremonial and diplomatic functions is still in a kind of transitional, liminal state. We are still expecting, still anticipating this coronation that should close the door on the transition and formally open the reign of this new monarch. So I figured it would be a very good time to talk to my friend and fellow historian, Tobias Harper, who is a professor of history at Arizona State University and who is the author of a recent book published by Oxford University Press titled From Servants of the Empire to Everyday Heroes, the British Honors System in the 20th Century. So this is about the honors system in the sense of the various organs and processes by which the British government gives out titles and distinctions like knighthoods and MBEs and OBEs and so on and so forth to British subjects and in some times and places to citizens of the Commonwealth realms outside Britain. And this shows a crucial way that the monarchy actually operates in modern society and it's a point of contact between the monarchy and the wider British society and the wider Commonwealth. So it shows you some of the nitty-gritty of how that influence and that power really work, beyond just, of course, the celebrity and the spectacle of it all. I really, really loved Toby's book. It's beautiful. It makes really trenchant, powerful points. And as you'll see some in this interview, I'm going to play the interview that I just had a few days ago with Toby. There are many powerful, interesting, ironic, surprising, moving stories all woven all through this book. And we'll get to some of them, but we there's no way we can possibly talk about all of them. So maybe at some point later on Twitter or another platform, I'll post some more of these remarkable stories and observations from this book. But without further ado, this is my recently recorded conversation with Tobias Harper, author of From Servants of the Empire to Everyday Heroes, The British Honors System in the 20th Century. So I loved this book. This was so much fun. It was like, it pushes all my buttons. (laughs) Like everything I find fascinating about status and class and (laughs) modern society. I have so many things I'd love to bring up and talk about from this book. I thought that the article that you wrote using little bits from from the book was great and like one of the most careful and interesting, well, probably the most careful and interesting reading I'd seen of of what I had to say. So I, I really, really appreciated that article. 
Well, I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah, it's called um, Into the Fairy Castle, right? And about sort of the evolution of, of liberalism yeah. and class. And I actually thought of your book because I remembered reading a chapter of it for a seminar at Columbia and, oh, and oh, how you had these wonderful stories about all these people from different walks of life going to the palace, receiving their honors and being feeling so proud, so chuffed to meet yes. the scene and be part of this beautiful ceremony and how it seems almost no matter what someone's attitude was about monarchy or class or honors, once they got one, they were thrilled, <laughs> right? It was, yeah. it was like a highlight of their lives, almost no matter where they were coming from. And, th and those really were the most fun stories in the book to both research and to write up. I think that that's really the core of the book to me. It, it forms an interesting emotional note, right? Yeah. Because so much of it is technical. It's about the different titles yeah. and the different government offices trying to manage the system. And then in this last section, you get these personal encounters, these first person voices. And, and I also remember that one of them you had integrated in there was Jimmy Savile. And, yeah. <laughs> and you were saying- Nasty kind of surprise. <laughs> yeah, a little, a bit of a creepy, uh, creepy element that showed up and this was we were discussing this just after all that terrible right yeah, about yeah. His crimes so for people yeah, I, who don't know could you want to explain briefly who jimmy well, savile is I, I i found that story before he died and, and after after his death he, he was a british dj a major tv personality he, he did a tv show called jim will fix it i think that's right um about you know, he'd go around and, and do community work. He did a lot of community work for which he received eventually both an OBE and, and eventually a knighthood. And it turned out that he'd been, you know, he was kind of a mass kind of serial abuser of, of young children and that he used his position as this famous community worker and, and the kind of status that came from his honours to shield himself from criticism both directly from his victims and from the many people around him who knew he was doing this. And it, it's, it's, it was a very, like this came out after I'd already kind of written some sections of the of this chapter. And, and it, was a, it, was, it was a very creepy experience. Creepy, creepy is exactly the right way. Yeah, and, it's, and it shows how the honors, it seems, there's this insight I think you have that the honors kind of cast almost like a magical spell. And I'll, I wanna go back yeah. to that later too, that yeah. there's this kind of magic aura that comes from the crown, the palace, and also by extension, the honors, which can then in a way sort of distort or blind people's vision, right? And that Jimmy Savile is one of these people who may be benefited from that, that it kind of cloaked him with this aura of respectability, right? Distort yeah, definitely. Definitely, I, th I think I think that it yeah, shows the power of honors, and, and and pinning down exactly what that does is really important, precisely because it has this kind of magical, re-enchanted quality coming out of what is, in certain ways, a, a very disenchanted system. It is, it is a very it is a very bureaucratic, a very kind of organized system for producing this list of people who receive honors. Yeah, yeah. And and very secretive, right? And you make that point through most yeah. of the book, right? It's been very secretive until recent times. It's yeah, somewhat, yeah. right? 
But uh, before we get into all of that, let's back up. Sorry. What do you mean by, no, I, I just love jumping into it, but, but I should stop and say, what do we mean here by the honors system, right? And I'm, I'm yeah. trying to pronounce it with that British U, right? <laughs> Which gives it this little respectable ring to it, right? The honors right. system. What we don't mean here, like an academic honor system, we mean these sort of names, titles. You already mentioned Jimmy Savile, he got an OBE, and then later he got a knighthood, which is a higher honor. So, basically, what is the honors system? So, towards the end of when I was writing this book, a engineer colleague at, at my, old, my old job pointed out to a, to a seminar of a, a seminar, and we're talking about systems in general, it was an interdisciplinary seminar. And his his, defi- his favorite definition of systems was a system is a collection of systems. And I think that applies really well to the honor system. That's it's not one unified thing. It is a collection of different state honors, military and civilian, hereditary, non-hereditary, and accumulated over hundreds of years, which in the 20th century are both kind of expanding in scope, but also increasingly centralized around a couple of government departments who really manage them. So it it includes, on the one hand, I I didn't really talk about this in the book, it includes military medals and some civilian gallantry medals. But the thing I was really interested in was the kind of subsystem of the system, which is the civilian state honours, especially but not exclusively around orders of chivalry and the knighthood. Mm. So these these are rewards that or honours that people are receiving for some kind of service to the state. The, the service ranges very widely across time and, and across these different honours. And, and I was I was really interested in the book and, and looking at what these what these honours meant and how the system changed over time, both both from the end of the you know, how it was run, but also who received it, how how people were thought about it. Yeah, and you discuss a lot in the book why it changed and yeah. the sort of functions that it serves in <laughs> British society, which to me seems very important, right? Because it's something that you encounter kind of in the background. If you look at British British society, you notice, oh, Judy Dench is Dame Judy Dench. And, you know, and Helen Mirren is MBE or whatever. And it just sort of pops up these these letters and and fixtures on people's names. And but there's rarely, I think, any discussion about, well, how does this all work? And why why does this system keep going and keep perpetuating itself, even when it seems a lot like the monarchy? It seems like, well, this must be so outmoded. How could people keep buying into this? And yet they do, right? People receive all these honors and very few turn them down. It's it's remarkable how rare it is for anyone to to say, no, I don't need to be a commander of the order of the British Empire or whatever this you know, uh, pompous sort of title is. Uh, it, it keeps going and people seem to still like it. But to, yeah. to back up to two important things you mentioned, one is that this system expanded a lot in the 20th century, yeah. right? Which can seem ironic, right? Right at the time when the yes. empire is breaking up, the Church of England, these other institutions are losing a lot of their power. This honor system expanded. So, wh- can you tell us first how and why did that massive expansion begin? Yeah. So, I think there, there are a couple of processes going on. One, and it was expanding 
before I start my story. And I, if I could go back and change one thing about this book, I, I would have started earlier. Um, I think I followed the nature of the records when actually I should have I should have gone with my initial instinct, which was to start in the middle of the 19th century. But so there's, there's sort of a rap, there's sort of an expansion. I, I think one way to think about this is that the honor system expands with the state. The, the bigger the state gets, the more kind of institutional momentum there is to create more honors to recognize the increasing number of state employees. That, that's, that's what kind of one simple answer for why it expands in the 20th century is that is that you've got a in the 19th century you've got an kind of expanding imperial state with the new demands on kind of honors as a, as a way of enforcing service and loyalty that comes from that. And in the 20th century, you've got more of an expanding, the, the kind of welfare state, but also kind of the, the government in general is getting is getting kind of bigger, is, is kind of reaching into more different parts of British society and economics. And logic of the honor system is that it kind of goes where the state goes. So I think that's part of it. The other part is that you have, it is a kind, is more, is more at the level of society that this is also a expanding empire with a with a you know, vastly vastly more diverse and more populous range of people who who, who are part of the empire. And by the twenty in, in the kind of late nineteenth early twentieth century, it's it's a it's a democratizing system where where you've got more people are making a claim to be citizens who are worthy of recognition. So so you've got you've got both the kind of Factors from within the, the expanding and evolving state, but you've also got a society that is, well, you, you've got not, not one society, but many different societies who are more confident and more insistent about making demands to, to be recognized by, by the system. In, in a way, the more, pop, and then it kind of snowballs, and the more popular it gets, the more people want to have a share of it. Right. It's sort of an unstoppable cycle, right, of taking in more people, more constituencies. And you point out early on in the book, you know, you sort of, as you said, you mentioned that there was this expansion in the Victorian age. But then the biggest jump, it seems, was the creation of this sort of imaginary group, right, that only exists like on paper, this order of the British Empire which was created mm-hmm. in 1917, right at the height yeah. of the First World War. And thousands of people now are being uh, given these, these medals and ribbons and this right to put letters after their name like MBE or OBE. So why, where did this order of the British Empire come from and why did it come up right in the middle yeah. of the First World War? So I, 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 the order of British Empire really uh, and I, the book is called the 20th century, but the Order of British Empire, the, this creation of the Order of British Empire, kind of is the the driver of, of, the, of the opening chapter. Um, and yeah, the this is coming out of the large scale civilian mobilisation in, in Britain in World War One, which is largely voluntary. And this and and this is what feeds directly into into the full male suffrage at the end of the war, partial, partial women's suffrage at the end of the war. Um, so this is kind of a democratizing moment in Britain. It's, it's kind of the, the second to last stage, stage of the very slow process of, of getting, to, getting to full adult suffrage. And the Order of the British Empire is, it comes out of discussions in the government 
around, and I think Lloyd, Lloyd George, David Lloyd George was already liked the idea of using honours to serve various political purposes. And, and so creating a new order of chivalry that would recognise the, the large-scale civilian voluntary effort was really important to him and to some other um, civil servants, to some royal servants, to, to the royal family, and to, to other politicians. But the key thing about the order of British Empire that, that made it a, a nice starting point is that this is the first order, actually it's the second, but the first large-scale order to recognize women alongside men equally to men, well, basically equally to men. And it's also the first order to really serve the, the middle class on a large scale. But before this, almost all of the orders of chivalry were primarily for a pretty narrow band of the, the social elite. The Order of British Empire is the first time this has kind of uh, opened up to, to this much, much wider range of, of the middle class. Yeah, yeah. And once this order exists, you now have these, every year, these huge lists of thousands of people. Yeah, Some especially more... especially early on. Yeah. Right, right. It's kind of right in the spike in of the First World War. Yeah. So you have, it's easy to forget the First World War was really a total war, right? There was yeah. this complete social mobilization. And the state, or at least certain people like the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, you mentioned, they had to look for ways to reward and reinforce that social mobilization that wasn't just giving out tons of money, right? They didn't, it was like, you can see it in a way as kind of a substitute, right? If there's a huge voluntary mobilization, it's more inexpensive to give these sort of ceremonial recognition. Exactly. Rather than paying people billions and billions of pounds, right? (laughs) Yeah, and, and and the government is already spending far far more than it ever really wants to. So so it, it had a great deal of appeal to people in government because Lloyd, Lloyd George gets caught up in various corruption scandals around honors uh, and and around other things. And one of the things one of the things he says around this time, I think I quote this in the book, is that selling honors. So so actually having wealthy. Wealthy people who want status buying knighthoods or peerages is more desirable than the American system where they just buy direct access. So, so they're spending their money on status, not on not on political influence. Yeah, it's, in some ways, it's disingenuous because this is a system in which status gives you political influence. Mm. But I, I think it's, this this example shows the way in which the people, the architects of the system, were conscious of exactly this transaction that you're you're talking about. That this isn't entirely separated from the economy, that this, this is a way of getting something for free. Right. It's a different kind of currency almost. And you, yeah. you, in the beginning of the book, you refer to incidents that have happened like David Beckham, his private communications, you know, a terrible violation of his privacy, his communications yeah. were published. And it was found that he was spending a lot of money on charity yeah. with the hope of getting a knighthood. That was yeah. what he wanted, which to to recapitulate is is a very high level honor, right? Sort of yeah. own, most people who get an MBE or an OBE are not elevated to that level. Only a smaller set yeah. hopes of- there's, there's, a, there's a triangle. There, it's this. a pyramidal, it's very pyramidal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, these, and at the very top, just to be clear, you have these old chivalric orders like the Order of the Garter mm-hmm. and the Order of the Bath or the- the highest level of prestige. But David Beckham, you know, a football player from an ordinary background, 
he's hoping to get up into those upper tiers and he's spending money philanthropically in that hope. And then it's not working, right? And you use this language, you say he didn't know what the exchange rates were, right? He yeah. <laughs> and, and so you use this metaphor that it's almost like exchanging one currency for another, right? Yeah. Money or labor in can be translated yeah. into these honors. And many people really want these honors a lot and will spend a lot of money and time trying to get them. But something that, you know, to me, on the one hand, I said, oh, well, this is a useful metaphor, right? It's a clever conceit. But at the same time, the main government office that managed and set the quotas of these honors was the treasury up until yes. recent times. Yeah. And I just kept asking, why the treasury? Isn't that kind of crazy? Yeah. And I think this, this is all, this is a reflection of the status of the treasury. The treasury was kind of the, the, the leading government office in the, in the time period we're looking at. I think that honors end up, the ceremonial office ends up as part of a treasury because, because the treasury is the head of the civil service. But I, but I, I think this means that treasury officials bring treasury logic to honors. It, 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 it kind of ends up being this very suitable place precisely because of, of, of what you just suggested. This is, this is kind of more than a metaphor for them, for, for a cash economy. Well, you, you, you use it a number of times this language that the, the treasury had to fight inflation, right? Which yes, is so they, funny they hate inflation. <laughs> that's exactly the sort of thing we're talking about today, right? Is how do we tweak yeah. our exchange rates, our interest rates to control inflation. And yeah. it's remarkable how easily that vocabulary seems to transfer into this world of dispensing honors. Did did you find oh, treasury officials speaking that way themselves and drawing? Oh, yeah, out? yeah. And I, 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 I came up with this because this is exactly how they were thinking about it, that they were, they were very concerned about deflation. I, I guess that was particularly fascinating because honors are free in a sense. I mean, they, they, cost, they cost money to mint the medals and to do the, do the administration. But, but as, as we were discussing before, it's a fairly cheap way of recognizing people. But the treasury, especially in these in the 1920s, 1930s, was very concerned about keeping the numbers at a minimum, even though mm. in a way there was no, uh, unlike with, with real money, there was no need to do that. You could just honor 10,000 people as opposed to 1,000 in the next honors list. I, the cost would be would be nebulous. It would be about reputation. It would it would be the it would be the newspaper editorials that say, "Are we giving out too many MBEs?" Mm. But I, I think in terms of recipients, there, there's always way. I just make it clear: there's always way, way more demand for this. There are always many, many, many more people making nom nominations, nominating their their colleagues, their peers, people in their community than there are honors to go out. Mm -hmm. That doesn't have to be the case, but but there is still this desire to to keep to keep the honors to a certain number that's set you know, more or less arbitrarily. So they they always maintain that scarcity, right? There's it's always yeah, less yeah. than the demand, and it's interesting. You know, the part of the irony is using this language of currency as if this was all so quantifiable when really the yes, social yeah, value yeah. and the prestige of these, these honors and awards is very abstract, right? It's really, yes. it's soft power. 
And it seems to, keeping this demand going seems to serve a sort of soft power function of the state, right? Right. right. And, and there are sort of two things I want to get into about that. One is the fact that there is this deep imperial background, right? Yes. And it struck me in reading your book how often India and the British Raj in India yeah. seem to be kind of formative in conceiving of this system and defining it. And that, in fact, you know, we, we talk about the order of the British Empire, but there was an order of the Indian Empire yeah. that predated that. Yes. And can you tell us what a little bit, what, how did these honors and titles work in India? And was that maybe a forerunner yeah. or a template? I, I think, yeah, the, the Indian honors are really interesting. They're, they're a template almost by accident that... There are two things. I guess one is kind of analytical that Indian historians have written, but historians of India have written about the honor system in very, very different terms to how historians of Britain write about it, in, in as much as historians of Britain write about it at all. Historians of India write about honors as a kind of fairly blatant attempt by the imperial states to buy the loyalty of Indian elites. And yeah, I think this, this is very helpful because it because it because it kind of gets at the transactional nature and it, and it and it's sort of getting at exactly what these transactions mean. And 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 that's easy to see in the records because it's pretty clear in the India Office records that that this is how British officials see it as well. It's really interesting because the British officials themselves are receiving the same honors as the Indians that they're also honoring. They value them in the same way that for themselves in the same way that people back in Britain value honors or in the same ways, I should say, it's, there's not one template necessarily, but they're very cynical about Indian honors. They, they, they see Indian honors as a way of, of disciplining and, and controlling Indian elites. This is a couple of- carrot and stick. Sorry to- Yeah, you, yeah. It's, it's like the carrot aspect of this campaign yeah. to manage Indian society, right? Yeah. And it's kind of tied up in an older, Orientalist idea that the British have that India 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 is a place you need to manage through through kind of quasi feudal mechanisms that that that, that Indian oh, sorry British Indian officials believe and by, by the 20th century that they're, they're, they're more or less wrong about this in most cases that honors are, are an essential tool for managing Indians and, and kind of are, are, are something that Indians are unusually susceptible to the the, the charm of. The irony being that they themselves are really, really, really value these honors. This is a debate um, in 1947, 1948 between British officials and, and Jawaharlal Nehru about whether or not they can they can keep honors lists going for one or two more years after, after Indian independence. And Nehru's like, no, no. Indian nationalists do not like the system. Uh, he, he and Jinnah can, can agree on this. Um, and, and so they cut it off. But... Clearly, some of these British officials, they're, they're saying, well, no, we need, we owe the army a certain number of honours. We, we need to keep it going because we, we have this kind of ongoing debt and we need, we need a couple more years to pay it off. But also, obviously, they are concerned about this because once the Order of the Indian Empire ends, they're not going to get their honours when they get back to the UK. There's sort of a the dual nature of it. So, yeah, to come back to the question, there's a, the Indian honour system is rewarding both British civil servants who are managing the Indian Empire and Indian elites. And, and the, the British are fairly careful to try and keep the numbers about even. So that they want to look like they're look like this is a 
equal system, <laughs> equal is the wrong word, but they, they, they want to look like there's sort of parity between honoring British people versus honoring Indians. The problem is Indians don't, and this is, this is, this is in the 19th, late 19th century, Indians don't really have any senior positions in the government of India. So, so there, there are some Indian, there are some Indian Indian civil servants, but the senior positions are all held by British administrators. So the British have to look elsewhere in Indian society. You know, the, the more the more Indian honors they create, the more they have to look elsewhere in Indian society, you know, Indian civil society, for people to honor. Which means that in the 19th century, you're getting that the, the Indian honor system is the one where you can see a larger range of kind of philanthropists or scholars, uh, scholars business people in India getting honors in a way that anticipates how it changes in Britain in the 20th century. I'm not sure, I'm not sure if Britain is getting it from India, but it's kind of a it's kind of a product of, of the way the system works in India. Yeah, it seems like a remarkable parallel. And the mm. um, there yeah. and as you said, it it seems like a great case of projection, right? There's this yes. sort of infantilizing notion that, oh, the, the Asian people want ceremony and pageantry and they can be bought off with with praise and awards and baubles and yet all of that translates beautifully to britain right it's british people yeah. who, who love this stuff and who yeah. are so impressed with it and you have this wonderful short story that you quote by Ru rudyard kipling by, by kipling yeah, yeah you know classic british imperialist orientalist you know despite having a certain degree of understanding of Indian society. Nonetheless, he's very, very Orientalist. And, and he has this story where P Indian people are upset and wailing because a fount of honor has been closed, right? And there's yeah. this repeating metaphor that these honors are are like coming out of a spring or a fountain. And the ultimate- Which, which is the person of the monarch. The, 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 the monarch is the fountain. Right. right, the ultimate source is, is the king or queen himself. And and so they're upset, they're wailing, but then the 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 fountain starts up again, and they're relieved, and we're oh we're getting a KSCT or whatever these acronyms are for these. Yeah, and then a, a young British boy in India hears this commotion and says, "Well, oh, I understand because I was very happy when I was given yeah. the award for best singer today." And in some ways, I think it, it encapsulates this duality, right? You can see them as equal or similar, but at the same time, it's likening Indian adults to a British child. Right? Yeah. And, and I think this highlights the inequalities of empire because you've got a, you've got a system that's trying to be equal, but it can't because it's a system that, that's, that's all about Stats and hierarchies, and if, if your if your if your hierarchies are unequal, then then you can't produce this equalized outcome in terms of honors. Yeah, and and a lot of this paradox, and maybe we'll go back to this at the end, hopefully, if we have a minute. But this paradox then also transfers to Britain when people yeah. say things. There, you know, the 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 order of the British Empire is created during the First World War. And for the first few years into the 1920s, it's given out to just totally unprecedented numbers of people, right? People who may have worked as nurses or ambulance drivers or factory managers, thousands of people are getting these, these honors. 
And some people say, well, this is good. And I think one writer said, this is British democracy's own order of chivalry, yeah. which struck me as this perfect paradox, right? But how can an order of chivalry be democratic? Aren't those two things contradictory? I mean, do you think that they succeeded somehow yeah. in squaring that circle? But the, the term I've used, and I think, I think I use this in the book, is it's a democratization of hierarchy, that it's, it's, it's like the hierarchies that previously people were familiar with only by kind of looking up at the, the kind of village dignitaries or the, or the people at the top of their society now reaches, reaches into the middle class and eventually, eventually the working class. So this kind of this expansion of hierarchy or expansion of kind of a classificatory hierarchy into more and more of society. But in doing this, this also creates a democratization of, democratization of hierarchy in a different sense, that more people start talking about it, more people care about it, more people get involved in debates about who is receiving what and why. So I, I think that there is something about this. And I, I do have trouble kind of articulating, putting my finger on what is distinctive about this in relation to British society. Um, both in comparison to the empire and in comparison to other other societies which have honor systems, which is and most you know, the United States has an honor system, but no one really cares that much about it in the way they do about the British system. And I think this is part of that. That this is this is something that people care about the closer they are to it, and and caring about it isn't. It goes back to the magical aspect of it. So it isn't consistent with their political principles. It isn't necessarily consistent with. It isn't necessarily the same between neighbors or between different communities or all the many, many different communities within Britain, the British Empire. But it does, it, it does kind of take over more of society. I take a take of a strong word, but it becomes it becomes more important to more people the more it expands. And it's like the, the very glib way of saying this is that the more you rank people, the more people care about rank. And it, it, I think you make the case very well that it really, it's penetrated into sort of all yeah. sectors of British society that you can find. And the immigrant communities, celebrities, pop culture, all of them get woven in, in some way or another. There's sort of no corner of British society that I think you can find that's totally untouched. And you even have, maybe I'll refer to this again later, this story of a man who was homeless, who, who suffered from right. Nick, Nick Charles, yeah. homeless, he ends up getting an honor. And some people see that as almost like honoring the homeless community. Like there's yeah. sort of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the very well, lowest rungs, you know, the down and out are still somehow affected by this system. And there's, I think in the book, there's a sort of funny dual perspective where you try to capture what people value and how yeah. how this works in their lives, while at the same time looking at it critically and seeing how this is a function yeah. of state power and a way of kind of managing society. You, you sort of see it through both perspectives that way. And I wondered, uh, you know, I wanna bring this up too, is that you yourself are from New Zealand, right? If I'm yeah. remember right, yeah. You yeah. grew up in New Zealand, which is a Commonwealth realm, Right. So it was part yes. of this Victorian British Empire. It's now effectively an independent nation, but it still has this special tie to Britain and the British crown. And the head yes. of state is still technically the king. Right. As we would say today. And do you. I, I would have slipped and said the queen. 
<laughs> we still have to. I'm still, I, I still haven't adapted. I, I haven't adapted yet. Well, yeah, after, you know, after 70 years of saying the queen, it's, <laughs> it takes a little time to, to adjust there. And, you know, and that's a whole other question. Will people yeah. uh, still feel the same connection to this whole system now that it's a king and not the queen? But for one thing, in your background in New Zealand, did you find that people were very conscious of the monarchy, the royal family, honors, uh, titles? Yeah. Was this part of people's experience and thinking in New Zealand? I think it, less so than in the UK. I, I think I think it is different from the UK. I use quite a lot of New Zealand examples in the book because New Zealand's an interesting case and because, because I enjoy doing research there. I, I haven't lived in New Zealand for 15 years now. <laughs> I moved away a while ago. I, I think this gets back to what you were saying earlier about, about I think it's a helpful metaphor to think about the honor system is sort of the background noise of a lot of what's going on in, in modern Britain. And it's true of New Zealand in a slightly different way. Growing up in New Zealand, I was conscious of, of honors as a, especially knighthoods, as, as something, and, and damehoods as something that exists and something that means something. That's a very vague sense. So I, I didn't care about the fine details of, of the ranks and the, um, New Zealand Order of Merit, which is kind of the New Zealand replacement to the Order of the British Empire in the 1990s. Well, so it starts in the, a bit earlier, in the 70s, but fully replaces the Order of the British Empire in the 90s. And I think the background noise, that they're kind of honours this background noise of, of other things in New Zealand society is a more faded and more distant background noise than is in Russian, if, if that abused that metaphor. Would so, you say but I, I think the, the the more the more powerful influence growing up was that I was reading British books, I was watching British TV. So you kind of have this dual thing where you've got both what it is in in nineteen eighties and nineties New Zealand, but also then you're getting this longer, deeper, both in time and in, and in, I think in, in society and kind of social terms thing from British culture. It seems to speak to this issue and this other kind of ongoing tension and debate that runs mm -hmm. through the book about what makes the British honors so appealing. And yeah. uh, but as we said, the most widespread honor that people now get is Order of the British Empire. And yeah. there are different ranks, right? You can MBE and then OBE and then CBE and people of higher status and wealth might get a higher rank than others. But most of the people who receive an honor and go to the palace, this is what they're being invited yeah. in, the Order of the British Empire. And just saying the words, Order of the British Empire, yeah. you know, can strike so many people as this is outdated, anachronistic, even offensive, right? When we yeah. talk about the atrocities that the British regime committed in many countries. And yet it hasn't been changed. And there's this sort of counter argument that no, the anachronism of it is what makes it appealing. So who, and, and Prince Philip comes into this story. So yeah. just as an interesting way to yes. start, what did, how did Prince Philip weigh in on this question about the name of this order? So I'm pretty, so early on in, the, in his career as, as um, the, the consort of the queen, he was made the, the Grand Master of the Order of British Empire, so the symbolic head of the Order of British Empire. And you know, like, like a number of things, he, he was a kind of reformer and he wanted to active, be active in this role. And one of the suggestions he made through the 50s and 60s 
you know, just exactly at a time when decolonization is sort of ramping up and it's becoming clear that the empire is not going to last that much longer. He is lobbying behind the scenes to rename the order of the British Empire to something else that's not, that doesn't have empire in the name for all, for all, the, all the reasons that you described. So in a, in a way, he's, he's kind of, he's pretty, he's pretty ahead of his time or he's pretty on to the fact that this name is potentially pretty offensive to a lot of people. He wants to update it. And he doesn't get anywhere with this. Even though he's the Grand Master of the Order of British Empire, the people who actually run it in the Treasury have no interest in changing the name. There are people in the Commonwealth Office who do, who do want to change it, who, who are supporting Philip, but ultimately the Treasury puts an end to all of this discussion. And their argument, they have two arguments, one of which was proven false within a couple, of a couple of years of them making it, which was that people in the Commonwealth don't care and actually quite like the name. Um, they specifically cite the Caribbean as a place where, where this is the case. And they're only listening to white mm -hmm. Jamaicans who are basically British officials. They're not paying attention to the actual wider feeling of the majority of the population of, of Jamaica or Trinidad. Mm -hmm. So, so they're, they're clearly wrong about this. Their other argument, though, is that there's something, you know, the more obsolete the British Empire becomes, the better the name is, that obsolete names are a good thing, that because they're enchanting, because they capture a nostalgic sense of the past. So there is kind of this moment where, where, this, where this debate seems really important, that if you're calling this the order of British Empire, then surely those places which were once part of British Empire, which are now breaking away and in certain ways you're opposing empire, if you're using it in those places, then you need to rename it. But once those places start naming their own honours, start kind of dropping the order of British Empire and, re and renaming or sort of creating new honours which with, with new national names, then, then there's less pressure on the order of British Empire to rename. And this, this kind of argument about the antiquity of the name, even, even though it's only a few decades old, it's argued about the, the name being obsolete, being a good thing, starts to really take off. So that, especially, especially internally, I think this, this is something that's really important for ceremonial office in the 20th century. There, there's also a political debate that parallels this. This comes up in politics here and there, but it's almost always shut down immediately by the prime minister in response to this internal lobbying from the treasury. So, and, this is a really interesting case because it shows where the monarchy tries to get involved behind the scenes mm. and completely fails, even though they're, even though in this case, at least, this intervention is actually pretty, a pretty clever one. I think it would be better if Prince Philip had succeeded here for the honor system as a whole. Whether that's better from my perspective is, is different, but, but it would, it would have been, it would have been healthy for the honor system to, to think about that change earlier. I know for a fact that this is an ongoing discussion internally. I, I think the, the modern ceremonial office has a very different attitude to this question than, than the, the, the one in the treasury in the, in the 50s. Um, but, but, but yeah, this is a really strange debate because you're getting this idea that, that obsolescence is, is valuable. And I think this anticipates a lot of kind of where the, the British heritage industry goes in the, at the end of the 20th century. I think this is all so fascinating. Every aspect of it has so many implications to it you know and i think you point out astutely that philip is thinking about the monarchy and the royal family yeah yeah he is conscious yeah. he wants to dissociate 
the monarchy from the empire. He doesn't like those associations. Yeah. And, 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 and I think he's, he's looking forward to a monarchy, a kind of Commonwealth monarchy. He wants to keep those connections with the former empire and keep them healthy. Whereas you know, the actual direction the honor system takes is a more narrowly British system. It's it's very interesting when you look at the chronology, right? Just as you said, very soon in the 1970s, nations like Jamaica, Trinidad, they chose to opt out of this British honor yeah. system, right? They remain in the Commonwealth. So for some of those yes. countries, the British monarch is still their head of state. They still have this special yeah, association. Jamaica is, right, yeah. And and a few other smaller nations in the, the Caribbean but but they have refused to to continue with this OBE and and yeah. all of these orders. But then there are sort of intermediate cases like Australia and New Zealand where it continued a bit longer. But then they phased it out and replaced yeah. it with their own system. And the one place where it keeps going is within Britain, right? So it seems yeah. like the the British themselves. Well I uh, find this idea of the order of the British Empire most appealing, most amenable. And it can seem on the one hand like, oh, well, it more or less falls along lines of race, right? That if you're if you're of British descent, this all sounds great to you. It's you like the nostalgia and these Treasury officials, remarkably, you quote them, they even use the word nostalgia. People like this nostalgia for the empire, whereas if you are from an Asian or African heritage, you reject it, right? But then you also point out that within Britain, it's not that simple. There are even people yeah. from uh, from other nations who have immigrated to Great Britain, and they've almost exactly repeated what the Treasury officials said, that, oh, you know, it's outmoded, it's anachronistic, but that makes it harmless. That makes it yeah. sort of charming, yeah. not offensive. And, and this is a big debate now um and i think from the from the 90s yeah you, you get this kind of rebounds that mm. more and more there's both political and kind of I, I think internal civil service that kind of desire to use the honor system to paint a different picture of britain's mm. contemporary diversity and they run again and again to this problem that there'll always be a, a small but significant number of potential recipients of these of these honors who say, look, my ancestors were enslaved by the British Empire. I'm not going to accept the, 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 the I'm not going to become a commander of the British Empire because it's just I, and, and this, this is this is still a minority. But but every time it happens, it's you know, it, it, it's a challenge to the to this kind of nostalgic order that I, I think it's a really interesting debate because you get so many different perspectives on this. I, I mentioned the, the kind of Nigerian British artist Yinka Shonabare at, at, at the very end of the book, who, who kind of accepts an MBE, but then he kind of uses it as to I kind of ironically brand his art, which is very much about taking images from kind of classical art and making them giving them this kind of post-colonial twist. I, I'm not really describing that very well. So, so his, his acceptance and use of the MBE is itself a kind of ironic commentary in the same way that his art is. And, and, and so you've got this really wide range of debates and responses to this in contemporary Britain, which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, and, and I want, if I can, I want to ask you about 
a remarkable instance of this, right? As we said, there are very few refuseniks, right? Yeah. And even those who do refuse, if you look in the records, there are some people like C.S. Lewis oh, yeah. and um, David Bowie who have said no, but we don't really know why. I mean, as far as I know, yeah, yeah. I have an explanation of why they declined these honors. But then there's this instance of Benjamin Zephaniah yeah. who is a poet who was born in Great Britain. Uh, he, he's from Birmingham, but he's a Rastafari. So I assume he has a West Indian heritage. Yeah. And you yeah. quote in 2001, he wrote a very scathing poem about, uh, about how people of, of West Indian heritage are sort of used as props in Britain. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and he wrote, quote, the ancestors would turn in graves. Those poor black folk that once were slaves would wonder how our souls were sold and check our strategies. The empire strikes back and waves. Tamed warriors bow on parades. When they have done what they've been told, they get their OBEs. So he's he's referring to this, this honor of being an officer of the order of the British Empire, kind of little second tier mm -hmm. honor. And then... You explained two years later in 2003, the British government offered him an OBE. <laughs> exactly. After he wrote this poem, which was kind of yeah. Two years after this poem that specifically mocks how people are sort of bought off or turned yeah. into props, it seems, he's saying, by with yeah. these honors. And he said no. And this raises a number of questions in my mind. One of them is, do you it's such a it's such a perfect irony. Do you think that this is sort of an intentional strategy that the 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 government will find critics who stand outside the sort of traditional system yeah. of status and national symbolism and specifically try to draw them in? Like, is this is this not just an accident? I, I don't think so. I, I think it would have been. I think this is actually a failure of their of their cross-checking system. If, I think if they had not, if they had been paying attention to this poem, they probably wouldn't have made the offer. I, I think this is this is more a kind of product of the that kind of bureaucratic logic of the system that they they're looking for prominent community figures, uh, you know, prominent, prominent black community figures and artists. And Zephaniah is 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 a good. I mean, if, if anything, maybe Zephaniah is more prominent than a OBE really merit um rank uh, yeah um <laughs> and i i think his, his time as he probably knew when he wrote that poem his time was going to come up sooner or later mm. because he 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 that's a, he is a, the kind of person that the government at the time especially was looking for so i i think that the, this his he, he he was a really useful example for me because he says outright stuff that i think a lot of people thinking about these questions are, are debating internally. And it also reflects something, one of the criticisms that, that a couple of people directed at Zephaniah was, you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to say if you're offered an honor, it's all secret, you know, it's, it's an insult to the queen. But they said that to, when it was a black guy with, with dreadlocks who did it, they don't say it when it's scientists who, and, and if you look at, if you look at, you know, 1950s rural society, there's much the same debate, actually 1940s, it's very similar debate or similar similar arguments come from a couple of scientists who end up rejecting knighthoods mm. saying that we at a time when science is increasingly state-sponsored and kind of the state is kind of taking over more and more of, of scientific research during the war and after the war that they see 
the kind of expansion of honors within that field as being a kind of sign of integration into the establishment. And those who are opposed to integration, like Zephaniah, who, who's, who, who captures that critique very much in terms of, I don't want to be part of Tony Blair's establishment. It's, it's, those, it's those scientists in the 40s who are rejecting the knighthoods because they want to be independent. They, they see this as being a way of yoking them to, to the state and to politics in a way that isn't desirable. And, you know, and Zephaniah's statement about this is very political. He's, he criticizes Blair a lot. Even though you know, Blair's role in this was you know, ticking, ticking his name off on a, on a list, but in, in a way, if, in a way, I think the critics of Zephaniah were getting it fundamentally wrong because the fact that Zephaniah was wanting to talk about this again shows that he cared and was thinking about what an honor meant, and, and I think that's in a way more interesting than someone who just wants it because of a fancy name, it's a fancy letters after their name. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point that I think your perspective can bring out is that if if nobody's refusing these honors, then they must not mean anything, right? They must be just superfluous, right? There must be, there has to be some kind of weight and significance to it for people to to weigh and debate, do I want this? Do I want this attached to me? Right. I think through the 20th century, the government officials and and royal officials had a lot of trouble with, with, in a a way, the results of the success of a system. But again, it goes back to this idea of democratization. Democratization is a two-way street. And and actually, it goes goes back to something you were saying earlier, that people project themselves onto these honors. And when it's it's, it's a very kind of specific and bounded symbolism, the hierarchy hierarchy of these honors, they're supposed to mean one thing that they're not they're not supposed to be something that you play with but the fact that people are doing so much with them you know Shonabare with his with his kind of using it as part of his artistic branding or people rejecting them or I I think I have an illustration here of the 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 milkman who who wears a a suit patterned like a Frisian cow to the to his to his investiture I I think that the, the ways in which people project their 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 concerns and their community's concerns onto the honors that they receive or don't receive or reject shows how much they mean to the communities where they where they are relevant. There are there are two significant, at least two significant forces sort of at work here that help to account for why the system remains compelling and people continue to yeah. care about it. And one is that an honor can have this dual function where it's sort of giving approval and distinction to a certain person. But at the same time, whenever you ask someone, why did you get this award? What does it represent? They seem to always say, oh, well, it's not about me individually. It's about the community I'm part of. This is really a recognition for nurses or general practitioners or engineers. It's not about me individually. And yeah. it has this sort of it, it's it has this social meaning, right? Yeah. But of course, to me, that that strikes me as another paradox. Like, well, if well, then why not give the honor to the group, right? Why right. Are you, why are you honoring the group through this one selected individual, yeah. right? And do you see that tension coming up? And like, how again? How does that? How do they sort of square the circle of that? It certainly comes up in cases where unpopular bosses or, or people who are notoriously thorny but prestigious get honoured and their 
their colleagues or subordinates are a little bit resentful of this. Um, yeah, so, so symbolism can go two ways. That, that if, if you're going to recognize a community through a symbolic head of that community, you better make sure that that, that symbolic head isn't a complete jerk. But yeah, I, I, th I think this is particularly important in an increasingly atomized and fragmented and anomic society. I think this is one of the really interesting things, kind of from, seen from a larger view, this power to make community bonds seem stronger, to, to, to kind of unite people around, around one figure in a way that makes the community seem important. But it's a very, it's a very shallow, it, it's sort of, papering over isn't quite the right metaphor, but, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a very fragile, kind of it's a very fragile way of doing it in a society that is so fragmented and, and is under so much strain in so many ways. I, I think you can see this really clearly in Britain today, that at a time of economic and political crisis, there's both this potential to take a figure like, I, I embarrassingly, I can't remember his name, the, the guy who, the, the very old guy who walked around his, his yard at the beginning of the, the pandemic to raise money. You, you, have these, you have these figures where they can kind of powerfully express the concerns of society or the community, but that doesn't fix anything. The, the, this, this, is, this is a kind of feel-good moment, but if, if the problems that they're addressing are the creation of, of the very institutions that are giving these honours, at a certain point, that, that just starts to fragment. One of, the, one of the big shifts across the 20th century is a shift from recognising state service to recognising voluntary service, especially from the 80s and the 90s, especially 90s. The honour system shifts to, to focus more and more on voluntary service. And again, part of the problem there is that this coincides with the proliferation of charities and voluntary service, that, that more and more you, the British, British society is relying more and more on voluntary work and on charitable giving to kind of fix expanding social problems that are coming out of the, the kind of deconstruction of, of, of the welfare state. And giving those people honours doesn't solve the problem. I, in certain ways, that's been very popular because these people are generally you're get, getting honours for things that you, especially at a low level, that you that were voluntary is a really appealing story. So it's a really appealing. It's kind of it, it, that, that's the critique of a lot of the earlier honour systems. So it just goes to civil servants. And so I think that shift in who gets honours, which is largely achieved through an expansion of the honour system rather than through cutting other categories, was really popular and for good reason. But it doesn't fix the problem. It's only a brief moment of feeling good that comes from that. It isn't, it isn't uniting these communities in the way that maybe is the intention. And it doesn't move real resources, right? It moves this yeah, sort of yeah. soft social prestige, but and, not, not hard money. And, and, and then you have cases like, like the Beckham case you mentioned earlier, when people respond to the system by, by responding to its incentives and actually giving a lot of money that is also kind of not blameless that that, that also gets criticized you know the the, the, the really interesting thing about you know, fr from you know 19th century india through to the present is that if people are discovered to be doing the things that the honor system incentivizes for the wrong reasons they get made fun of or they get they get criticized so so it's a lose-lose situation especially for someone like beckham from from a more modest social background because on the one hand, he's doing what he should do. He's doing the things that you're supposed to do to get a knighthood because that's the way the system is set up here. 
this is supposed to be an incentive for, for, for charitable work and for, for that converting wealth and celebrity into social service. But the fact that he wanted it was the problem. The, the, the fact that he was doing, responding to these incentives was something the media then made a great deal of fun of. Yeah, well, it, it's almost a, a classic catch-22, right? Yeah. That you shouldn't want this thing. Yes. But if you get it, you should be very happy and grateful that you get yeah. it. But yeah. it's bad if you wanted it. <laughs> right and I think you, you see that in, in people's responses to getting nominated and receiving awards, that one of the main emotions people express is surprise. No one really wants to be thought to have expected it or be thought to have taken it for granted, especially especially among among the, the wider public outside of the, the traditional, the, the areas where people traditionally received honors. And, and as you quote and point out over and over again, this sort of logic that you shouldn't want it, you shouldn't expect it, it should be a surprise, it's almost as if to, to maintain its aura, it has to be a bit arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And this, and this logic keeps being then used against civil servants, right? That they, they shouldn't be getting all these honors and they're, they're automatic, right? This is the phrase yeah. I keep using. You shouldn't be automatically getting honors just because you were a minister or an undersecretary, yeah. et cetera. And there's this sort of campaign in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, this campaign to shift honors in the direction of the voluntary sector and away from civil servants, bureaucrats. And it did strike me that, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the sort of loaded word, right? It, it struck me as in line with kind of neoliberalism, which is, you know, a term that people complain about. It's very vague. It's very broad. But I mean, I would say it basically refers to this mindset that the state shouldn't tackle social problems directly through state action. It should operate through the, the market, the private sphere, and it should use sort of market incentives, right? So it seems to be, to me, it seems remarkably in line. If you look at these, yeah, yeah. these honors as sort of a way of the state incentivizing or nudging, right? This famous term, yeah. a way to nudge people into the kind of action that people want, rather than using state power and resources directly. Do you see that as? Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, interestingly, it's John Major who really, I think, identifies this. But Margaret Thatcher was not particularly interested in honours, except in a more traditional political sense of rewarding donors. And it's really John Major who takes the kind of logic of a kind of, well, I, I, I think, so, so, so there's a lot of emphasis in 80s and 90s, especially in the 90s in, in conservative politics about like a classless society. It, it, it kind of the idea that the old class hierarchies need to be kind of broken down and and reconstituted on the basis of merit has defined by, by success in the market. And I think what Major was trying to do with his reforms in the early 90s was break down, kind of get rid of the civil service automaticity that was a big concern, and also break down the connection between hierarchy and honours. The problem was that the honour system is innately hierarchical. The, the, the way to do this would actually just be to to, to take Tony Benn, like kind of, this is not, this is not work, but, but to, to just create one honour and everyone gets the same honour and have no hierarchy at all. But because honours have hierarchies and because it remains a pyramid, you know, who gets what does change after the 90s? But you kind of get a different view of what 
the new hierarchies in kind of neoliberal multicultural Britain are. So, so it, 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 there are these real meaningful changes to who receives honors, but it's it, it's kind of it's a mirror to it's a mirror to how how social hierarchy and economic hierarchies have changed changed in Britain at the end of the century. It struck me, you know, the in India there were these social critics who were very trenchant and who said, yeah. you know, this whole system is a way of buying people off. It's a social manipulation. In Britain, there are different criticisms from all different directions, yeah. but they tend to be about who's getting the honors and who isn't. Yes, yeah. Right? It's, a good, it's sort of a game. It's, it's like the, criticism, the, 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 the same criticism is more implicit rather than explicit. And I think that, that like, actually, I come back to the sort of more personal point what you were saying earlier about, about New Zealand versus Britain here, that doing this research and living in Britain for a while, doing research, like growing up in New Zealand, I felt like I was kind of, if not British, then at least kind of sort of British. British. I, I, I was definitely an Anglophile. Right? Mm. Doing this research made me see myself as being very, very different. I, it made me understand the ways in which I am not British. And the culture that I kind of soaked up when I was a kid is not what Britain actually is. And, you know, I, I, I very much am not an Anglophile now. I, I, I would not identify that way. I think, I think the more I did this research, the more I saw myself more like one of these external critics trying to understand the logic, more like an anthropologist, trying to understand, well, like an old school anthropologist, trying to understand a cultural system from outside of it and less like someone who was like a distant cousin of, of, of the culture that I'm looking at. Yeah. You could say in a sense you were disenchanted. <laughs> yeah, no, I, exactly. And I think, I think that those terms of kind of re-enchantment, disenchantment became more important to me the more I th thought about this because I realized to say something different and to, to kind of reflect my research, I had to be a bit more of a, a kind of social scientist talking about systems more like those those earlier Indian critics of trying to understand what exactly is this doing? What are the transactions here? What what is what's the relationship between the kind of the culture and the the underlying system? Yeah, and it definitely struck me. It seems like your book is sort of doing the kind of critique that these scholars in India did, maybe just in a more nuanced kind of fine-grained way, but applying that sort of critique to the system within Britain rather than just yeah. the empire and the colonies, but within Britain itself. Yeah. And just, bringing the critique, critique on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just to sort of sum up like what we've been talking about, there's, I think, this kind of core passage in near the middle of the book when you're you're just about to get to the part about the Beatles, <laughs> which yeah. is so wonderful. But you you basically sum up that in in your argument the the system serves quote to foster a relationship between the state the crown and civil society where the newly included deferred to existing social hierarchies right yeah. so it can bring in new people but they have to be integrated into these value systems that exist and then you say the inclusion of new groups so we can talk about women volunteers, uh, celebrities, all of these people, the inclusion of new groups was a way of investing them in an older system of social hierarchy, as well as a form of recognition of their importance in modern society. Yeah. So I was sort of wondering, for one thing, 
I mean, do you, do you think it's been successful? Do you think it can continues to be effective? Oh, I, th- I think the system getting back, getting back to kind of like theory of systems, like the monarchy, it's hard to define success. Like it is success about continuing because it's been successful itself at perpetuating itself. But in perpetuating itself, it changes. It adapts to, it adapts to new circumstances. And I'm not sure if there is a clear measure for success at this point. That mm-hmm. I, I think the people running it in the 1920s would be horrified both to see what modern Britain is like, but also, but also with what it has become. It all depends on what, what you see as being its, its criteria for success. So yeah, I, I'm not a necessarily a big fan of it. I think it would be much better if it looked a different way, but or if it didn't exist at all. But 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 I I think in the balance it has been successful, but it owes a lot of its success to how people have responded to it as opposed to how it's been run. Maybe maybe that's a good way of putting it. Okay. So this the success is more in how people have participated and interpreted yeah. it in their own ways, right? That's, that's what it needs. That's what it needs in order to work. Yeah, and just uh, I, I want to talk if you still have a few minutes. I I want to oh, yeah, talk definitely. a little bit about the monarchy and this transition yeah. going on. But just lastly, before before we go to that, I wanted to again bring up this story that struck me, where a man named Nick Charles, who was a yeah. recovering alcoholic, yeah. started an organization, and he had been homeless at one point yeah. in London. But he starts this organization to help alcoholics. He receives an honor. So he goes to the palace, right, along with dozens of other people who have been invited on this day to receive this medal and shake the monarch's hand. And well, I think in this case, he shook Prince, then Prince Charles's hand, I think. So the, the prince, right, the Prince of Wales at that time. So sometimes it's another member of the household, yeah, yeah. right? It might not be the queen or king themselves. But he, he has this experience. Then he commandeers a camera crew and says, I'm going to go show you where I used to sleep under a bridge. And he yeah. finds, he goes there to this site of an, a homeless encampment. He meets a man there named Bob, whom he knew. And yeah. he's, you know, they're moved, they're crying. And he says, I'm going to come back. And Bob says, no, don't. This is, I right. think this is a crucial moment. Bob says, don't come back. And he says, you won't come back because you got to keep going forward. You're all we've got. You got to do what none of us could do. You're all we've got left. And then he further explains he, he's still in this difficult position as an addict, right? But he says, one thing's changed. One of us has made it to the palace. Right. And, you know, it's a moving story. But it also struck me that it, it seems to really exemplify a lot of what we've been talking about. You don't need actual action to solve social problems. You just need this symbolism yeah. of one of you being plucked up to this elevated position, right? So would yeah. you say, do you see this as a sort of similar maybe to what was done in the colonies, right? That this sort of gesture of picking out certain special individuals and elevating them can right. kind of obscure how actual wealth and power are really working in society. Yeah, especially when you're on a system as, as itself. You've got figures there like Nick Charles who, who, have, who have put a lot of time into helping people 
But you know, look at look at the upper levels of the Onokono system, and it's it's more similar to what it was a hundred years ago than than the lower levels. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ambiguity in that story. And what does Bob mean by moving forward? What does he mean by one of us has gone to the palace? It's it's left a bit open ended, and I, I spend a lot of time kind of puzzling over that story and trying to. And it took me a long time to figure out how to how to write that up. I think I think this might be a way of actually looking at the monarchy as well. So I, I think that the honor system and the monarchy are tied to one another. And if you think about success, I think they're even even though as as I talk about quite a lot, the most honors are decided upon by committees of civil servants. In in people's minds, the, the honor system is overwhelmingly connected with the monarchy because you, I mean, partly because people go to the palace to receive their honors. So that the most important ceremonial stage in honors is directly associated with with a, a, a senior member of a royal family. Yeah. And I, I think one of the problems for both the royal family and the honor system, and, and this is relevant to contemporary debates about Charles, um, is that going back to the, the relative retreat of the welfare state in Britain, this makes the monarchy more, more important. Like the, the, the monarchy has had the central role in both kind of authenticating who, who the who the honored people in society are, but also in running, running the voluntary sector. The, these are probably the two most important roles of the, of the monarchy in the second half of the 20th century. And they're very much linked. You know, one, one, of the, one of the reasons why this shift to voluntary, focus on voluntary service for honors is very successful, I think, is because it brings these two functions of a monarchy together. It, it, it means that the closer association between the, mon- the monarchy's leadership of voluntary sector on the one hand, and their kind of public role as the, the head of the honor system on the other. But the more the voluntary sector is central to questions of poverty, health, the environment, education in, in modern Britain, the more that kind of responsibility is shifting from government to the monarchy in a way. Like the, the, this, this shift has made the monarchy more political by default. And I think in this, in, this, in this transition from Elizabeth to Charles, I think a bit of that's been lost, that people, people see their personalities and their kind of public images as being, you know, Elizabeth was just, you know, really, really good at being neutral and Charles is kind of more meddling or whatever. But in fact, you know, late Elizabeth's reign is really different from early Elizabeth's reign, that the, the role of monarchy has changed by default largely invisibly or, or, or sort of at least not invisibly but without a whole lot of comment to being more central to to british society i i really think that's an important point that if they were just ceremonial figureheads we wouldn't mm-hmm. be talking about them all the time they command a fascination and i think that fascination is it it reflects something real about how people are living yeah. and acting and working that people want symbols and they want symbols that aren't just automatons, right? They want symbols that seem like people with thoughts and attachments. And somehow it seems like Elizabeth, you know, she didn't, she made some mistakes, you know, she is certainly not above criticism and the monarchy is not above criticism, (laughs) at least in. I I, I certainly, I certainly agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But she, she struck an effective balance, right? That people felt that they could imagine her as a real flesh and blood person at the same time that she was totally above it all and above politics. 
and 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 crucially imagine her as being like them. I, I think Elizabeth was either really good or really bad at I probably really good at at being a kind of blank slate onto which people could project their own concerns, sympathies, and interests. Even though you know she she was you know this aristocratic horse racing enthusiast who bred corgi. I, so she did all these things. And the, the things we do know about her personal life are not surprising for someone from the British royal family. But she she kept a lot of other things mysterious, which enabled people to to see in her what they wanted to see. Both both positive and negative. Right? I, I think her critics, as much as her her fans, did that. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to get close to knowing. She is both the most public figure and the most private figure. And I, I, I'm always skeptical of people's claims about what she was like because she was really good at hiding what she was like. Charles is, and Charles is not. I know Charles is a little bit more. It's a little bit more obvious what he thinks about certain things. Although, again, I'd be hesitant to claim any real understanding of what I know what goes on in anyone's head, but in particular, yeah, the British royal family's head. It's- well, and Charles, it seems, is in such a strange position. I mean, no one yeah. has ever been waiting in the wings for as long as he has. And then you combine that together with the mass media and, and the fact yes. that personal, very personal things about him have been exposed, leaked out, yeah. some, sometimes political things, sometimes things about his opinions and how he tries to influence the, the architecture scene, and also very personal things about his affairs, which yeah. are not unusual. I mean, all kinds yeah. of people have extramarital affairs and all kinds of other personal dealings. Many rulers have had all kinds of skeletons in the closet about their personal lives. But Charles has been so exposed and so scrutinized in a way that no one has before, I think, I would argue. It raises the question, can he keep this kind of magic going? Yeah. in, In some ways, your book made me think several different ways about it. Because on the one hand, you emphasize how effective it was that people starting in the 40s, starting with George the George the Sixth and then Elizabeth, were brought right up into the palace and mm-hmm. just made such an impression yeah. on people. And they were so pleased having 20, 30 seconds to chat with the queen. But sometimes, as you mentioned, sometimes also it was Charles as Prince of Wales. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were very pleased and impressed with that too. You know, he he seems to have done that job effectively as well. So it just leaves well, me with the question, do you think that Charles as king can keep this this sort of magic going? So one of my favorite quotes anywhere in, that I quote anywhere in the book is from Vera Lynn, the, the, the famous singer, and, and you know, she did a lot of charity work herself, where, where she goes to receive, I can't remember which, I can't, she, she received many honors in her life, but one of the ones where she goes to the palace she writes about it in an autobiography and says, well, the great thing about all the royals, but in particular about Prince Philip, is that he always knows the right thing to say to the right people. And, and that's like the reverse of Prince Philip's public reputation. Right? This is kind of like, when I read that, I was like, oh. <laughs> but, but I think, well, I, th- I, think I, I guess there are two things here. One is that I think in general, one of the things that certainly Elizabeth, Charles, Philip were careful to train and practice and foster was cold reading, <laughs> being able to approach any person and talk to them about stuff and, and, and kind of make themselves charming. You know, that, that is part of their job and, and something that a lot of the, that, that sort of, it's, it's central to the family business. It, it, it's a really, really important 
skill because it means that in these little encounters, they leave a good impression. At the same time, I, I think, what's the right way of putting this, that a lot of this will come down to factors that are outside their control. There's, there's very little in this process where the royal family actually has agency to change the bigger systems that determine their fate. They do, I mean, they do have some, that they, they, can, they, they can make good or bad choices. Elizabeth's choice that Charles needed to marry Diana was a terrible decision and it hurt the royal family a lot. Um, it was it was cruel. It was it was a bad decision. It hurt it, it hurt the people involved and it hurt the, the institutions involved. So that that does. You know, but I I think the decisions, the choices facing the royal family, there are a lot of potential bad decisions and a lot of and not a lot of. It's really really hard to see the future and see what the good right ways forward are. In particular, I, I think the the um, the Sussexes show this. Harry and Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle, that their alienation from the royal family shows the, the problems with making the royal family this kind of mirror onto which modern Britain projects itself. That when, when you've got vestiges, when you've got honours, it's the good things. It's like you're seeing you know, people everyone loves, or a lot, of, a lot of people love, or people who seem to be doing good things, going and, and getting... Standing by, standing, getting received honors from the queen, kneeling before the queen. That that looks really good. But the royal family is a reflection of modern Britain in other ways. And you know, modern Britain is the term I like to use is, is you know has this particular brand of you know, passive aggressive racism that's pervasive and reaches throughout all its institutions. It turns out that the royal family was one of them. And and I think uh, I, I don't know the details about what went on there. You know, there are many different stories here, but you know, I'm sure that. Meghan Markle was regularly suffered indignities at the hands of, if not the senior members of the royal family, then at least you know, the, the whole system. You know, the, 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 this, is, the, this, is a, this is a feature of modern Britain that the royal family reflects that is not a great feature. And the more, the more people see that in the controversies around the royal family, you know, that, that's, a bad, that, that's not going to go well for them, um, especially as, new, as you know, with younger generations who are more diverse and are more more interested in, in seeing the royal family, I think, as, as, as personalities than as kind of screens. I mean, obviously, there's so much one could say and get into about the disaster with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. But to me, you know, like you said, there's a lot of details we don't know. But at the absolute yeah. bare minimum, something we do know is that this was the first time that a person of color of any sort yeah. was in the royal family and that that was there was going to necessarily be some racist reaction to that in in britain abroad both and that they didn't protect her they didn't no, yeah, I guess. They, they didn't plan and mobilize to manage that problem at the very even, even, even though even though they they failed to predict diana as well and I think this is this is, this is, this is something, <laughs> this is something that they've been bad at doing for a long time and they couldn't they they they, they couldn't do it yeah. yeah, and I have to say, I'm I'm sure I'll get some blowback from admirers of the Queen, which, you know, I think there's plenty oh, of grounds to admire the Queen and plenty of grounds to criticize the Queen. But I do have to say, you know, when the nation was in mourning, Charles made this very nice speech, a tribute to his mother. And he said a, a lot of very good, very nice things about her. But one of them that stuck out to me was he said she has she had an unfailing ability to see the best in people. And yeah. I thought, I think at least with the prominent example of Diana, 
she did fail to see the best. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that she... or, she, or, or, or if she saw it, she failed to act. And I think this, this, this is kind of the, like, and, and it's, it's the reverse. Like, this is a, there's a really good book, recent book by Edward Owens about, about the royal family in kind of the interwar through, through the 50s, in which he, he points out that in the middle of the century, the royal family leaned more and more heavily into the language of duty and sacrifice. That that kind of, the, and, and the, you see this everywhere in, in the responses to Elizabeth's death. The problem with this, I think, in this case in particular, is that if you, if you make the, and that's highlighting, they're also a family. That if you're sacrificing people for the duty, if you're chewing up the lives of the vulnerable women who enter the family as, as spouses driven by driven by love and and relationships, if if then if then they're kind of chewed up by that duty and sacrifice because they ultimately their duty is to produce heirs and smile, mm-hmm. and and if their individuality is kind of shattered and crushed and and pushed to the side, what does that say about the institution? That that if if it's an institution that's just about duty, sacrifice, and you know, lots of money and privilege, that looks really bad. Yeah. especially when, when other people are suffering I, 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 I do like Elizabeth seemed to be a very nice person and she certainly was good at good at her job in a lot of ways whatever her job was and again I think there's a lot of ambiguity about what that about that but so, someone someone really close to me in my family died, I, my, my mother died a few years ago it's in the book so I can say this I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mourn a woman who I did not know or watch a TV procession about her funeral when someone I did care about, who I know to have been a good person, and I know this, they, uh, there aren't many people like about whom I can say that, but I know it was the case in, in 2019 when my, my mum died. I'm going to mourn her. I'm not going to mourn Elizabeth. I, why, why should I? Uh, yeah, that's a side, a side note. But, but I, I think people are people. You see that for the funeral as well. People are projecting the the grief and the, the frustration with what's been happening in Britain the last few years onto that funeral. Like all the jokes about how, oh, she died after meeting Liz Truss. And, you know, as if kind of, as if kind of there was this, like she's dying because modern Britain is dying. I I think that's, it's understandable, but it's like, we should mourn the people who matter to us. And someone who who, who mysteriously is the the head of state of, of New Zealand, who I've never met, who enjoys an enormous amount of wealth, protection, privacy, and privilege that I, I don't even, I can't even access. You know, I'm, I'm not going to mourn that. She does seem to have been nice, but but this is not, it just doesn't make sense to me, sorry. I think that that adds a lot of dimension and brings out sort of what's at stake when so many people say of the queen, she was like my gran, right? Yeah. Almost as if they may be, it's ambiguous. Maybe you're sort of saying you had this personal relationship to her or in a sense, you see her as you, you're substituting in this person you really knew and imagining that she is somehow a carbon copy of that, that when you don't really have a personal relationship with them, right? And a lot of people have drawn this connection, but I think your book helps reveals a whole other level to this sort of connection between monarchy and celebrity, right? And that people want to think that celebrities are people they really know and they they want to have a personal connection. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean to write about monarchy in this book when I started it, but but the, the, the just the logic of what people were saying about their honors pulled me into it. Yeah, yeah. And that, you, you know, as I said, you 
the 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 Wilson government in the '60s, you explain, was sort of a watershed where Wilson used this language of magic. He was sort of drawing in the stardust of celebrities like the Beatles, and bringing it into what seemed to be yeah. a stuffy, right, a, a very stuffy, hidebound institution. And there's this paradox that some people felt that the the palace was selling out right by by yeah. prostituting cheapening these awards giving them to sort of teeny bopper rockers who uh, hadn't earned them and then on the other hand some beatles fans felt that the beatles were selling out that they were sort of becoming right. yeah, yeah, exactly. by going and including, including john lena yeah but and yet the irony is that to us today it seems very natural, right? It's, yeah, think of yeah. Sir Paul McCartney and Dame Judi Dench. Of course, these British celebrities are going yeah. to get these honors. And it seems as if- Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart. I mean, you could go on and on. And would you say it seems there's been a sort of merging now of, of the magic of celebrity with the magic of monarchy in the palace? And was the honor system part of this? Mm, yeah, I think so. I, I, think, I think that's right. And I think it's part of the generational- I think this is, this is partly about how the press has changed and how the how in particular press coverage of the monarchy changed in the 50s and 60s. The, the monarchy was exposed to a new kind of scrutiny and that scrutiny was a lot like celebrity scrutiny. The, the kind of rules changed and, and the, there was a new kind of... Another thing about this is that, that a lot of the, the biggest innovators with honours in terms of prime ministers were those who were most cynical about it. Wilson, Lloyd George... Mm. Um, I don't think John Major was cynical necessarily, but he was kind of an outsider to the system. So yeah, I, I think Wilson was ahead of his time in a number of ways with that focus on celebrity and with that intentional use of the immediate concerns of celebrity culture to try and modernize the honor system. And it's and it's remarkable too when you think about it. There's been this evolution, like you describe, where the state has nationalized certain industries, you know, manufacturing, <laughs> mining. And so then the honor system has had to extend to these important industries. And now, I mean, I'm sure I have a very American viewpoint on this, but I think of celebrity and entertainment as a major <laughs> industry and export of Great Britain. Yeah, no, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really been thinking about it like that, but but I, I think this is all, like, the, this is all, Consistent with the whole the Olympic opening ceremony a few years ago, the, this kind of packaging mm -hmm. to the world of, of, of modern Britain is this combination of Elizabeth, James Bond, Winnie the Pooh, you know, Paddington Bear was the more recent one. Yeah. And, and, and then kind of in the physical setting of, of London is this kind of heritage city where you visit it to do any number of walking tours on whichever, whichever whether it's the Beatles or the or you know Samuel Pepys that you're into, I, yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. I I want to think about that a little bit more because I, I think you know, this goes back to what I was saying before about about momentum in in systems. I think this is true of the monarchy as much as the honor system. That the mon I, I wrote a recent article about the Charles what what Charles the problems Charles faces, and and, and I, mm -hmm. I think that I, I closed it by talking a little bit about how. It's not clear, not clear what the purpose of monarchy is. That 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 it's it's vague, it's open-ended. And how do you define success for a king or a queen? Is it is it about keeping old systems in place? Is it about survival 
adaptation to new systems? Is it about reflecting society? Is it about changing society? I think all of those things kind of bounce around as, as concepts for the monarchy, but they're all really different. And there's a lot of tension between them. And, yeah. and, and, it, and this, this monarchy is celebrity thing is really interesting in that context because it's, it's definitely picking up something from society, but it probably also changes the tone of that discussion as well. Yeah. And I think lastly, I, I shouldn't keep you too much longer, but oh, oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to think about how, how this is all received abroad and how this affects sort of Britain's place and image in the world. You know, yeah. and, and you mentioned this for one thing, there's, we've been talking about the Commonwealth, right? And how different Commonwealth nations opted out of the honors system at different times. And some of them also have opted out of the monarchy, right? Barbados, just and others have decided, well, we can be part of this Commonwealth organization, whatever that is, whatever that's about, but we want our own head of state. We don't want the monarch to still be this foreign kind of imperial head of state. And so it raises the question, is the transition to Charles going to accelerate that process? Is there anything that can be done? Is this just a generational shift where that sort of system of symbols and associations just won't work anymore and there's really nothing the monarch can do? Or is there some way to reinvent it? I think it's helpful here to think about what is it the monarchy does for these places. And I, I think it's pretty clear what they give to the monarchy. The monarchy can kind of enjoys traveling around and, and getting associated with uh, the you know, wide range of diversity in the places where the monarchy, in these Commonwealth realms. You know, there are roughly as many people in the Commonwealth realms as there are in Britain itself. I, I did this calculation when, when Elizabeth died. And I think you have to kind of differentiate between the former settler colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and then the other Commonwealth realms in the Caribbean, Papua New Guinea. Solomon Islands, I think. Solomon Islands. And I think it's looking pretty fragile, Jamaica, for one thing. I I think, I I don't want to predict the future, but that that it seems likely that this is going to be an important discussion in Jamaica. The the former settler colonies are are a lot more complicated in a lot of ways. Well, not not more complicated, but more, it's it's a lot more difficult to see where that discussion is going to go in, in, in a couple of ways. For two two reasons I want to I want to mention. One is that I think constitutionally having the monarch as head of state and having a governor general as representative of that monarch gives governments a lot of flexibility. Governors general have exercised power in the last 50 years in ways that the queen would never have been allowed to. Governors general actually have a pretty important constitutional role in certain key events around, around governments in Canada in the last 10 years, Australia in the 1970s. So they also delay having to have awkward conversations about what the country should be. If, if, if you don't have the Queen as, as the sovereign of, of New Zealand, what is New Zealand's constitution? You'd have to go through, a, you'd have to go through, I, I'm very interested in this because I quite like this stamp and I think it'd be a really interesting conversation, but it'll be a really difficult one. And I think that having the Queen now as, as sovereign in some of, these, some of these places seems to them to be worth it to delay or to not have to have awkward conversations about what the constitution should be of an independent Canada or of an independent New Zealand. Yeah. Australia, I'm not, I'm not so sure. The other thing, though, is that, and this is true, especially in Canada and New Zealand, not so much in Australia, that there are, I, there are a lot of divisions in Indigenous populations about whether or not it's desirable to, to become republics, that the Crown 
has creates this constitutional stretchiness where you know the treaties that Maori signed in 1840 and the various na um, Native North American groups signed with the various kind of precursors of the Canadian government in the 19th century, they, those treaties were signed with the British monarch, which creates a way of an alternate conversation to simply between those groups and the settler governments. So, so there's, there's, there's a lot of complexity in those situations because I think that there's a way in which monarchy does offer something to different parties involved in, in what are very much domestic debates or, or specific local debates in these places. The monarchy offers a tool for thinking through those debates, even if it doesn't really know it or play an active role in it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and also can be kind of ironic, right? It's a way of going over yeah, the definitely. heads of the really, you know, colonial, what have been colonial regimes yeah. in those countries. And I thought a really another really interesting story in your in your book was the I think military nurses in New Zealand who have Ma yeah. Maori heritage. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a picture. Yeah, yeah, and one of them posed for her official sort of portrait when receiving her honors in traditional Maori dress. Yeah, and it yeah. seems to raise so many possibilities of what what she was thinking. And did she see this again as kind of an honor? for her, the, the Maori population or for her clan that she ought to accept in this formal way. But a last point I wanted to throw up and just see if you, you had any thoughts about was, did, did your study of this system make you look at all differently about status and sort of meritocracy in quotation marks? Right in general, yeah. in American society or at large. Yeah. And, you know, and it crossed my mind as I was reading this, that technically you and I both do have post-nominal letters and that's <laughs> PhD, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it made, you know, and it's something I know that you, I've thought about, yeah. you, know, you know, you can see possible parallels of how yes. institutions kind of dispense status through these formalized yes. mechanisms, but they're not the same, right? They're not the same as in Britain. And did you think about those comparisons yeah. or contrasts? I certainly th thought about the arbitrariness of a lot of this, um, a lot in, in grad school and, and, and since then. I think, yeah, I, I, I think if anything, this highlighted to me, and this is not a very historical point, but, ruthlessness of large-scale decision-making about hierarchies, and maybe in contrast to that, the importance of local communities, that, that the most authentically, authenticity is, authentic is a bad, is, 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 a, is a tough word to use, but it, it highlights the way in which I think in large modern societies organized around national or, or sort of large-scale political principles, so much of the kind of sorting and hierarchies of those of those principles is, is so arbitrary and so cold. And I think I've been thinking a lot myself about who am I? Well, what does it mean to be an individual and a, and a person in a society, in a community, in a society? And you know, in, in the past, I've I've hung a lot on books, not all letters, or or or, or like status positions and stuff like that. And I think this shows how hollow that is, that, that, that this is this is an interesting system. It's an important system. It, it often was 
they're really important to individuals, but it's still hollow. It's, it's still, at, at its core, it's, there's nothing there about what's really, really important in, in your relationships with other people. And, and that, that, I think, I thought about that a lot when I was, when I was writing this. And, you know, for me growing up in the United States and living in the U.S. my whole life, it seems like this whole idea of meritocracy has really grown and advanced, but without examination of, well, who gets to measure merit, right? And is it something that's dropped down on you from above, or is it something that your peers around you give to you? Who's elevating you? right? Is it, yeah, yeah, exactly. is it someone above you in some sort of putative hierarchy? And, and so it, to me, it, it struck me that this is very much about Britain, but it's also, again, it's about yeah. status and the sort of contradictions and the hidden, the hidden mechanisms of status, the hidden logics of status. I, I, I think that that is exactly right. And I, I, I always struggled to convey that, but I, I'm glad you got that from this because I think that that is something that really haunted me throughout throughout this book. Yeah, so it's it's a really beautiful book, from Servants of the Empire to Everyday Heroes, by Tobias or Toby Harper, as, oh, yeah, I've, yeah. Also, as I've also known him, who's a professor of history at Arizona State University. So thank you so much for talking with me. Well, th- thank you, Sam. This was really great. Beautiful.